We're going to move into a study of a new book this morning. Now, it's one of the shortest books, epistles, letters that we have. Only 25 verses, um, and yet there is so much here. I ambitiously had uh, initially thought that maybe we covered it off in a week. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. So we'll just see how far we get and uh, let the Lord guide us and lead us on this one. So uh, let's just bow our hearts, so shall we, and just ask the Lord just to speak to us from his word. Father, we just thank you this morning that we have the privilege and the freedom to be able to meet, even in the way that we do uh, online as we are, um, but Lord, to meet, to study your word together. And Father, we pray that you would open our understanding and Lord, help us to see that which you would have us see. Um, Father, we don't want to just learn and understand historical events. Father, we want to understand how these things apply to us today. Lord, how you want to work and mold and shape our lives as we continue to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So, Father, we give you this time, Lord. We invite you to just speak to our hearts, our minds. Lord, encourage us and bless us as a fellowship, but, Lord, as individuals. Um, Father, give us a greater love for you. Uh, and, Father, a, a stronger disdain for the things of this world. Oh, Lord, we just pray that as we near your return, Lord, our eyes would be firmly heavenward. Uh, Lord, not on the things around about us. We ask for your blessing on this time, on this study. Uh, Lord, however many weeks we spend in this book, Lord, we just ask that every moment we spend here, Lord, you would just speak to us and, Lord, strengthen us and cause us to grow in knowledge and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the book of Jude. Now, we're going to get into some interesting topics as we go through this study. Um, certainly this isn't your regular book in that sense. There's a lot of things that Jude throws in here that if it wasn't for Jude mentioning it, we would have no knowledge of. But we're going to see uh, as we go through what the Lord has to show us through these things. Jude wants to write to believers. He sets out and we'll look at it in a moment. Uh, he wants to write about our, our common salvation, talking about the blessings we have and just a real a letter of encouragement. But there's a problem. And Jude finds himself unable to write the letter he wants to write because there's something more pressing that he feels he has to share. And he has to write to recipients, including you and I. This is written to believers. And that is the fact that there were those who were claiming to be Christians in the church, but they were people who were bringing in destructive heresies they were bringing in ideas that were not in accord with what Jesus had taught and the disciples the apostles had taught they were leading people away from the truth they were bringing error and the biggest problem of all was that they were effectively saying well look you're safe now doesn't matter how you live you can do whatever you want you can live however you want you can indulge in whatever takes your fancy and Jude writes this letter really as a rebuttal to that mindset you know we are saved and we are obviously very grateful for our salvation. But as we've said a number of times, we looked at in our, our study going through Third John, the job's not over. Um, we are in this process where the Lord is working to transform us, this work of sanctification. And we said a number of times recently, we have these uh, three tenses of salvation. Uh, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. That was accomplished at Calvary. We are being saved from the power of sin right now. Uh, that's the work of sanctification. And we will be saved from the very presence of sin. So this work is ongoing. And being born again is just the start. For many Christians, it seems to be that they get to that stage, they're born again, they know they're saved, and that's, well, that's it, we don't have to worry. Well, that's exactly what Jude is writing to challenge and say, no, that's not the attitude we should have. And he's going to give us some really stark examples to encourage us to keep walking with the Lord. It's interesting. We've gone through, uh, obviously recently in our studies, went through the book of Hebrews, and then we've started to go through uh, looking at James, Peter's letters, John's letters, and, and they've all been almost building to a climax. And I guess in some senses, Jude is that climax. Peter was speaking about the reality that there would be those who would deceive coming into the church. Prior to that, James had been encouraging us to live a righteous life. James, as we've already looked at, was a brother of Jesus, according to the flesh, you know, half-brother of Jesus, um, son of Joseph and Mary. And James really just challenges us is to, you know, look, I missed out when I was on earth with Jesus, when I was 
every day growing up in this family, I missed out on realizing who he was. James then really just challenges us to, to live a life that really matters, that really means and encourages us to by the, the works that we do to show that our faith is genuine. And it's a really cool, I mean, it's a very gentle way that James puts it. Jude doesn't hold punches. Jude will build on all those things that we've been looking at, and including some of the things we've seen in the book of Hebrews, and really kind of ties all these ideas together. And so I guess in many senses, this is a call to a serious walk with the Lord. And so in that light, let's go through and look at what we've got here. So uh, obviously it's written by Jude. Now Jude also was a half brother of Jesus in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 13 verses 55 and 56. We find listed there at least four brothers, uh, James seemingly the oldest, uh, Joseph, Simon and Judas or Jude as he, we effectively uh, know him. Um, so there's at least four brothers that grew up in the family with Jesus. Jude seemingly the youngest of those brothers. You know what it's like for a younger sibling, don't you? You know, they look up to their, their siblings with awe and, and, uh, you know, so on. Uh, and they, they tend to try and imitate and copy and follow after them. I mean, I see it in the family here. Those of you that have grown up in families with siblings, you'll know that yourself or with children, uh, with siblings, it's the same. We also know that there were two sisters in the family, at least two, spoken of sisters as plural. There could have been more. Um, so this was a, a full household. It would no doubt have been very noisy. Uh, anybody with a number of children will know that it's quite noisy when you have all the children together. But Jude would have grown up in that environment. He would have known Jesus personally. And yet it seems that whilst Jesus was on earth through his time of ministry, his brethren didn't accept or acknowledge who he was. It was only afterwards that they come to faith in him. In fact, even then, we don't know for sure, but it looks like only James and Jude of the brothers actually came to faith. Joseph and Simon may have done so, but there's no record of that. Well, certainly James and Jude, because we have their letters in the New Testament, we know they came to that place of recognizing who Jesus was. Well, the writing here is to all believers. It's not to any specific group. It's not to a specific church. This is in general to those who are like-minded, who have a like precious faith and so on. It's written to warn and to encourage. I mean, the initial letter that Jude wanted to write was would have been just one of encouragement. And of course, there are elements of encouragement in this letter, but primarily this is a warning. Uh, and Jude is going to urge us to remember the things that we have learned and to heed the warnings. Now, interestingly, we're going to have a lot of dipping back into the Old Testament in the, the things that, that Jude refers to. Firstly, there's the highlight of the exodus from Egypt and then the wilderness wanderings is going to be alluded to. And of course, what happened to that generation and the problems because of unbelief, because of a lack of trust in God. We'll also have an allusion to Genesis chapter six, the days of Noah. And then Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be referenced. And then Deuteronomy 34, the death of Moses. Genesis 4, uh, the situation with Cain and Abel. And we'll be looking at the way of Cain. And then also uh, we'll look at Balaam from Numbers uh, 23. And then Enoch and Adam are going to be referenced from Genesis chapter 5. So lots of uh, little glimpses back into the Old Testament. So if you know your Old Testament, these things will be a bit more comfortable. Uh, we'll go through, we'll look at these things anyway, and we'll see exactly why Jude makes so many references in just these short verses we have here, just 25 verses, to so many different situations and topics in the Old Testament. Now, as I said already, James and Jude were these uh, half-brothers of, of, uh, of uh, Jesus, um, and we'll look at some details as we get into the first verse in a second. But when we look at the reason for writing, uh, it was to contend for the faith. This is what Jude himself says. Now, what we have in a breakdown of the book is why to contend. Uh, well, it's simply because there were apostates. There were people coming in, bringing false teaching and leading believers astray. Uh, and we'll look at the fact that in the first 16 verses, in a sense, that it, we look at the subtle perversions that they brought in, their certain doom, the fact that God was going to bring judgment, their impious ways, and of course their utter falsity and the things that they were claiming and saying. 
So that's why we should contend for the faith. But then the second half of the book really deals with the how to contend. And it lists some resources that we have in order to be able to contend for the faith. Now, the first one may not seem like a resource at first glance, but it's the fact that apostasy has been foretold. But actually, it is a resource because when you recognize and know that apostasy is going to happen, that you're then going to be on your guard and you'll be prepared and you'll be ready for it. So it's a, it's a great safeguard against following after these erroneous doctrines and teachings. Then we have uh, a, a section toward the end that deals with some really practical things that help us grow in our walk with the Lord. And to stay on track, uh, it's building each other up, it's praying, uh, it's keeping uh, this faith that we have, looking to the coming of the Lord and so on. We're going to be admonished to support those also who contend for the faith. So these are the, the two broad distinctions in the book. The first part, why to contend, and the second part, how to contend. And we'll look at that as we go through. In terms of the outline of the letter itself, well, um, we've got the authorship and salutation, the first couple of verses, then the purpose of the epistle is stated very clearly in verses three and four. And then we get some examples of judgments that are given to us in verses five through seven. And then is listed the lusts and sins of the apostates. Uh, just one verse, but really highlights that for us. Then a really bizarre, strange situation that is alluded to, but it highlights the humility of the Archangel Michael. And we'll talk about in detail and why Jude uses that example. We then get the characteristics of the apostates in verse 10 through 13. And then we have a prophecy, uh, probably one of the oldest prophecies in the Bible itself. Um, this is a prophecy given by Enoch who was uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 5, is the only place we really have uh, any real reference to Enoch. Um, but he prophesied of this incredible event that is yet to come as the Lord returns at the time of the second coming and brings his saints with him. Verses 14 and 15, we'll look at that. And then the apostates uh, are boastful and unmerciful, verse 16. And the next section then really, the uh, next two verses, we have a prophecy of Peter. Now, did you know that we have a prophecy of Peter recorded in the Bible? Well, we have it in Jude. Jude records the words that Peter had already written in his letters that we've recently gone through. Then the statement that really that the apostates are ungodly. Um, we need to be aware of this. They, are, they don't care for the things of God. They don't live godly lives. And by the way, that doesn't mean they don't be, do good things. They don't appear nice. The whole point of ungodly is it's just without God. You could be a lovely, wonderful, kind, caring, compassionate person and be without God and it makes you ungodly. Um, so we'll look at some of the distinctions as we go through. And then the, so we're going to look at seven Christian practices that guarantee security. And we'll talk about that in detail, but it's the whole idea that actually there are some safeguards, things that we can do ourselves that give us that confirmation that our salvation is genuine and sure. And then there's the closing benediction to round out the book. Um, so that's kind of the, the breakdown. There's a lot in this. Uh, there's a kind of design structure to the letter as well. This I got from Chuck Misler, but I thought it's worth sharing because it's quite interesting. It starts with the assurance for the Christian. It then goes on to the believer and the faith. Then we get the apostates are described. And then we get apostasy in the Old Testament history and then apostasy in the supernatural realm. And then an ancient trio of apostates are introduced. And then we kind of have the, the mirror of that. We have apostasy in the natural realm. We have apostasy in Old Testament prophecy as opposed to previously in history. And then we have apostates described again, and then the believer and faith. And then finally, the assurance for the Christian to conclude the letter. So it's an interesting symmetry. Um, do we make anything of that other than the fact that it just seems to indicate that there is design and probably beyond that which Jude intended, as you seem to be the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit in all through these things that we're looking at. What I want to do is to read through the epistle. Um, but as I did last week in Third John, I'd like to do it again. I want to read through in the paraphrase, the Living Bible, because it helps us to clarify some of the things. Um, as I said before, this is just a paraphrase. It's uh, Kenneth Taylor's uh, interpretation, his opinion. It's like a commentary. If we treat it as such, it's good. It's helpful. Uh, in fact, many uh, modern versions of the Bible, if you treat them as commentaries and it's somebody's idea, then they could be very helpful. Uh, but we always need to refer back to scripture. 
Um, so let's just read through uh, in this and then we'll uh, we'll come back and we'll go through uh, in the King James going through verse by verse. So we read from Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to Christians everywhere, beloved of God and chosen by him. May you be given more and more of God's kindness, peace and love. Dearly loved friends, I've been planning to write you some thoughts about the salvation God has given us. But now I find I must write of something else instead, urging you to stoutly defend the truth that God gave once for all to his people to keep without change through the years. I say this because some godless teachers have wormed their way in among you, saying that after we become Christians, we can do just as we like without fear of God's punishment. The fate of such people was written long ago. For they have turned against our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. My answer to them is, remember this fact. When you know already, or sorry, which you know already, that the Lord saved a whole nation of people out of the land of Egypt, and then killed every one of them who did not trust and obey him. And I remind you of those angels who were once pure and holy, but turned to a life of sin. Now God has given them, uh, as God has them chained up in prisons of darkness, waiting for the judgment day. And don't forget the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, all full of lust of every kind, including lust of men for other men. Those cities were destroyed by fire and continue to be a warning to us that there is a hell in which sinners are punished. Yet these false teachers carelessly go right on living their evil, immoral lives, degrading their bodies and laughing at those in authority over them, even scoffing at the glorious ones. Yet Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, when he was arguing with Satan about Moses' body, did not dare to accuse even Satan or jeer at him, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men mock and curse at anything they do not understand, and like animals they do whatever they feel like, thereby ruining their souls. Woe upon them, for they follow the example of Cain, who killed his brother, and like Balaam they'll do anything for money, and like Korah, they have disobeyed God and will die under his curse. When these men join you at the love feast of the church, they are evil smears among you, laughing and carrying on, gorging and stuffing themselves without a thought for others. They are like clouds blowing over dry land without giving rain, promising much but producing nothing. They are like fruit trees without any fruit at picking time. They are not only dead, but doubly dead, for they have been poured out, roots and all, to be burned. All they leave behind them is shame and disgrace, like the dirty foam left along the beach by wild waves. They wander around looking as bright as stars, but ahead of them is the everlasting gloom and darkness that God has prepared for them. Enoch, who lived seven generations after Adam, knew about these men and said this about them. See, the Lord is coming with millions of his holy ones. He will bring the people of the world before him in judgment to receive just punishment and to prove the terrible things they have done in rebellion against God, revealing all they have said against him. These men are constant gripers, never satisfied, doing whatever evil they feel like. They are loudmouth show-offs. And when they show respect for others, it is only to get something for them in return. Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ told you? That in the last times there would come these scoffers, whose whole purpose is in life is to enjoy themselves in every evil way imaginable. They stir up arguments. They love the evil things of, this, of the world. They do not have the Holy Spirit living in them. But you, dear friends, must build up your lives ever more strongly upon the foundation of our holy faith, learning to pray in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. Stay always within the boundaries where God's love can reach and bless you. Wait patiently for the eternal life that our Lord Jesus Christ in his mercy is going to give you. Try to help those who argue against you. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save some by snatching them as from the very flames of hell itself. As for others, Help them to find the Lord by being kind to them. But be careful that you yourselves aren't pulled along into their sins. Hate every trace of their sin while being merciful to them as sinners. And now, 
all glory to him who alone is God and saves us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, splendor and majesty, all power and authority are his from the beginning. His they are and his they evermore shall be. And he is able to keep you from slipping and falling away and to bring you sinless and perfect into his glorious presence with mighty shouts of everlasting joy. Amen. So that's the letter that Jude writes. Let's go through now, look at it verse by verse. Let's kind of pull it apart and see what we can draw out of this. We won't obviously get through the whole letter this morning, but let's just see how we get on. So we start Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. Notice the way that Jude introduces himself. He doesn't say, Jude, I'm the half brother of Jesus. Therefore, you ought to listen to me. I'm somebody with great authority. No, no. He refers to himself as a doulos. That's the, the Greek word. Doulos really comes from this idea of a bond servant. And you need to go back to Exodus 21 to really understand what this is all about. But in Exodus 21, what we have there is the account of an individual, someone who's been a slave for a master. They would serve typically seven years. At the end of that seven years, they would be free to go. But it might be that during that period of time, they might have found a wife. They might have had children who would technically belong to their master. Now, if they said, you know what, my life is better. I want to stay here. I want to stay in the home of my master. I want to serve him forever. Even though I can go free, I choose to stay. And if they made that decision, typically they'd be taken to the door of the house and they'd get an awl, a small metal pick really, and and bang it through their ear and they would basically pierce their ear. And that would be the sign then. They would wear this earring as a sign that they were devoted to their master, that they'd chosen to serve their master all of their life. Now that is what Paul says a number of times, the way he refers to himself, and here Jude says the same thing, that I was free to go. But I've chosen to be a bond servant, a servant who willingly wants to stay and serve my master, to stay in his house. So that's the introduction that Jude gives us. That's the nature of his relationship with Jesus. Although he grew up in his family, although as this youngest brother, seemingly he would have grown up looking at Jesus, probably being amazed in an awe, trying to copy and follow him, whatever he did and so on. And no doubt having those moments I see it here in the family. You know, sometimes our, our youngest child gets frustrated with the older children. Uh, and I'm sure that Jude had the same moments as well. And yet afterwards, Jude would have reflected on all those opportunities and those moments, the conversations that must have been had. No doubt, just always trying to work out why Jesus was never in trouble. You know, Jude probably, as the youngest brother, was often getting in trouble doing things he shouldn't have done. Jesus did nothing wrong. You know, can you imagine growing up in a family like that? But with all of that said, Jude now has come to that place of knowing who Jesus really is. That Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. And he must have been so overwhelmed personally at this privilege he'd had of growing up in that environment. But he doesn't boast about that. He simply says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus. And notice that he says, actually, I'm the brother of James. Now, as we said Already, um, James was seemingly the oldest brother. So after Jesus, uh, James would have been the oldest one in the family. James also doesn't boast about his relationship with Jesus in that sense, in the physical sense. He simply refers to himself as a servant as well. And so this is understanding, this knowledge of who Jesus is. And of course, Jude says he's a brother of James. Well, as we've mentioned already, Probably for the fact that, Jude, uh, that James was older, so that is out of respect and reverence, but also that James had become the head of the church in Jerusalem. And so James was well known to the Christians uh, in the first century. And as Jude writes, whether many knew Jude as well as James, uh, probably they didn't. Uh, and so in his writing, Jude simply says, I'm the brother of James. Uh, but again, it's interesting that he doesn't try and play on that relationship. Then he goes on. It says to them that are sanctified by God. So these are now the recipients. This is who he's writing to. Those who are sanctified, set apart by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Now, notice here, we've got three things. We're told that this letter is going to those who are sanctified, those who are preserved, and those who are called. All all the same group, same people. All those people he writes to are sanctified, preserved, and called. So let's just take these one by one because they're quite important. So notice what we're told to them that are sanctified by God, the father. Notice who does the work of sanctification. 
Firstly, you need to make a, a note here that it is not you that do that work. Many Christians think that once we have come to know the Lord, once we've been born again, well, it is then up to us to sort our act out, to tidy our lives up, to overcome, to uh, not sin anymore. Well, you won't get very far in your Christian life before you struggle. And of course, Paul in Romans 7 really addresses this whole problem. The, the things that we want to do, we find ourselves not being able to do. And the things that we know we should do, we, we, or the things we shouldn't do rather, we find ourselves doing those things. It's a real uh, dichotomy, this challenge that we have. Well, the good news is that just as salvation is a work of God, so is sanctification. We're told that, it's that we are sanctified by God the Father. You know, and we can no more sanctify ourselves than we can save ourselves. And yet we're also told in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, that we are sanctified by faith. So it doesn't just happen by sitting down and doing nothing. We have to have faith. And James, as we've already seen, makes it very clear that faith on its own means nothing. Faith has to be accompanied by works to demonstrate that the faith is genuine. And so there's an onus on each one of us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's an onus on each one of us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So this isn't simply a we're saved, we can sit back and put our feet up. In fact, that's exactly what Jude is writing to, to uh, contest and to counter that mindset. What we find is that this work of sanctification is God's work but we have to comply. We have to be willing to trust God through faith and allow him to do that work in us. Well, then we're told that we are preserved in Christ Jesus. Uh, the Greek word here is tereo, uh, and it means a watch or to guard from loss or injury or properly by keeping the eye upon. So really what this is saying is that Jesus is keeping his eye on you. You know, it's just as a little child is watched over by their father. You know, when we go out as a family and yesterday we went out for our um, uh, allotted portion of exercise that we get on a daily basis by the government at the moment. Uh, we went for a walk and of course, Sherea was off. We was a fairly safe area uh, away from cars and in a kind of an open grassy area. Uh, and, you know, she was running off. But I was keeping my eye on her the whole time. You know, uh, and and we kind of Joy and I do this little tag team thing. If I'm going to then look after one of the other girls, I just double check that Joy's keeping an eye on Sharia. We make sure someone's got their eye on her because, of course, she's young. And we want to make sure that she's OK. Well, the good news is for us as believers that Jesus is doing just the same thing with us. He's keeping his eye on you. He's watching over you wherever you go, whatever you do, because he loves you and he doesn't want you to stumble. He doesn't want you to come to any harm. It's a great uh, statement that we have there. Uh, and the Greek just really unpacks the meaning behind that. But then we're also told that we are called. Now, throughout the Bible, we find references to this incredible statement. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, uh, it's actually stated there that our names are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. You know, God is the one that called us. In fact, we're told very clearly in John's gospel, in John chapter 16, 15, verse 16, Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Romans eight twenty-eight, a verse I'm sure you're familiar with. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. See, God is the one who has called us. Jesus has called us to follow him. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we're told there, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness. And notice Lazarus. Think of the example there. Lazarus was dead and buried. He was in the grave. He had no power. He couldn't get up, couldn't move on his own. Of course, he was dead. But Jesus called him by name. And as he calls him, the life comes back in him and he comes out of that tomb. Very much like each one of us that we've been called. We were dead in trespasses and sins, Paul tells us. And God called us as two of the greatest words in the Bible read in, in Ephesians. That we were dead in trespasses and sins, but God. You know, those, uh, as I said, it's two of the most incredible words. If it hadn't have been God, then we wouldn't have been able to get out of the predicament we're in. But God himself has called us. 
And again, we've been called out of darkness into his marvellous life. Uh, marvelous, marvelous light and life, of course. Uh, in Matthew twenty two fourteen, we're told for as many, for many are called, but then we're told, but few are chosen. Now that's a really interesting statement because it means that the call goes out to all sorts of people. And many do respond, but many choose not to respond. Many, it says, many are called, but few are chosen. So the invitation goes out, but not everybody will avail themselves of that opportunity. Remember, of course, what we're told in John 3.16, that very famous verse, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, see the call has gone out, God has sent his son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish. But it doesn't mean that everybody will take advantage of that offer of salvation through Jesus. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, an interesting statement. Peter says this, Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you should never fall. Now, Peter understood what it meant to be called. All right. And he, he, he gives us this strange statement in a sense, but make your calling and election sure. He's saying we have a part to play in this. Now, this is really interesting because, of course, we know that God is sovereign. But and yet here and many other places, we find that there is a part that we have to play. Now, think of Peter's own life. Peter, of course, was a fisherman on the shores of Galilee. And Jesus comes along and calls him to follow him. Peter had a choice to make. Peter didn't have to follow. In fact, others had the call and chose not to. As Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. But Peter did choose. Why did Peter choose? Because Peter recognized what was going on. You see, for a Jewish child, there were various parts to their education and their growth. Firstly, there would be that period of education from typically about five years old up to the age of 12, referred to as Bet Sefar. They would learn to read and write by reading the Torah. What they would do is typically go to their Jewish school and they would get on the first day, they would get a copy of the Torah and they'd have some honey placed upon the Torah. And they were told to, to taste that honey. And then they were told that the word of God is sweeter even than the honey. Every time they tasted honey, they'd be reminded of just how wonderful, how sweet the word of God is and how we should love it and adore it and, and understand and learn it. Well, they would obviously learn to read and write by using the Torah. But that would take them typically to the age of 12 for a Jewish, for a male, typically is that, that um, uh, bar mitzvah uh, stage of their life. Uh, but then the best of the best those who had really excelled and learned and done very well would give, be given the opportunity to go on and study for another few years from the age of 13 through to 15, referred to as the Bet Midrash. And this was just, again, for the gifted students. Only the best of the best were ever given this opportunity. Now, seemingly, Peter and the disciples, the fishermen, they would have got to the age of 12 and they would have carried on doing what they did. They would have all gone back into the, the family business and learnt the trade. And of course they did. They became fishermen and so on. Seemingly, they didn't get this opportunity. But there's another stage of this development for Jewish uh, children. It was Bet Talmud. It was when, when they were 16 and above. For an exceptional few, they would be chosen or literally called by a rabbi. They would then follow that rabbi, learning to imitate that rabbi in everything, in the way that they ate, in the way that they walked, everything they did, they would follow them intently and they'd learn from that rabbi so that they could become like their rabbi. And again, only a few individuals ever got this opportunity. Jesus comes on to the scene and he calls these disciples. Jesus, a rabbi, recognized as such, even by that time. And he calls these people who had lost that opportunity of their further education, in a sense, and, and suddenly they are placed in a position of being called by a rabbi, and that wasn't missed on these disciples. They recognised this privilege that they were being called to. We are told in the book of Acts that the disciples were untrained and uneducated. So we can be pretty sure that they didn't have that opportunity to be uh, go on to that further education, Bet Midrash or certainly Bet Talmud. And so Peter is given, as the other disciples, a second chance. Now, hopefully that kind of puts it into the context because of what Peter says here in 2 Peter 1.10. 
his admonishment to us is don't blow it. You know, you have been called. You who maybe wouldn't have been chosen by a rabbi. You certainly wouldn't have given the opportunity to go on to that, 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 that further education where you get to learn the whole of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Now, we've been given something even greater than that. And we get the word of God dwelling within us. And effectively, Peter's saying, don't blow this opportunity you've had. You've been called. Make it certain. Make it sure. Apply yourself to this with everything you have. Back into Jude, and we read again, just look at these words, that we are sanctified. Okay, so we've been set apart. We've been constantly watched over, and we are being so by Jesus. And then we've been invited to follow. We've been called. But none of this negates our personal responsibility to, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4 verse 1, to walk worthy of the calling wherein you are called. See, we've been called, but it's now down to us to walk worthy of that calling, to show that we really are the ones that are called by the way that we live. Again, this is that act of faith as the Lord sanctifies us and sets us apart. Jude will give us some stark warnings to shake us out of any complacency we might have of thinking that we don't need to try. Now, I hope this morning as we go through these things, none of you are thinking, well, doesn't matter. I'm saved. That's good enough, because this is exactly what Jude is trying to counter. And again, the warnings we're going to see really are quite serious warnings indeed. Now, he goes on and says, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Now, it's not just a polite greeting. It is a greeting, but it's more than that. It's a must have list. Mercy is the first thing that he says there. And of course, in the light of what Jude says, we're going to see the importance of receiving God's mercy. One of the great statements we find throughout the Old Testament is that God's mercy endures forever. We actually have a number of songs and so on. And it speaks about God's love enduring forever. And it's good and it's true. And God's love does endure forever. But it's his mercy specifically, the scripture says, endures forever. And that is what we need. Because we still stumble. We still fall. Uh, as John says at the beginning of John's uh, first John's first letter, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, what does it tell us? Well, that we become recipients of his mercy. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is mercy and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need that mercy. Secondly, peace. Now, we know that we who are in Christ have peace because that's why we have this peace, because we are secure and safe in him. You know, but we must know our position in Christ. Or we can easily become like the apostates that Jude will warn us of that clearly didn't have that security and were always vying for position, vying for recognition, vying for other people to acknowledge them or to uh, effectively um, promote them uh, and uh, speak highly of them. They had a real need for other people to, to speak good of them. Well, none of us should be in that position. It shouldn't matter what other people say or think about us. We should be in a place where we have that perfect peace because we know who we are in Christ. The ladies are going to be looking at this in more detail on Wednesday evening. Now, love is the last thing in this list. And of course, it's the antithesis of the apostate who is self-seeking. As we saw, as we've been going through John's letters, love is all about giving. You know, and we're told that if we love, we abide in the light. And love is part of the fruit of the indwelling spirit within us. It's actually the Holy Spirit who, who sheds that, that or sheds abroad that love of God in our hearts. But love is about giving. It's not about getting for ourselves. So mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Amen. We need those things multiplied in our lives. Verse three. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you. I mean, firstly, you get the idea there that Jude's saying, I really stopped to think about what I wanted to write. I, with all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Notice what Jude says here. It's just an interesting point that salvation is the same for all men. There is only one way of salvation and it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father, but through him. There is no other route. There is no other way, you know, and there's no special elite such as the Jehovah's Witnesses speak of. They talk about 144,000 that are set apart. They have a special salvation and they get to go to heaven and everyone else gets to stay on the earth. You know, even Roman Catholics have their own kind of hierarchy. And there's the saints for a Roman Catholic are this higher class of people who are saved. And that's nothing uh, that's not found in scripture. 
Now, it's a common salvation. It's the same for all of us. We are all saved from a, from a, a king to a pauper in exactly the same way. You know, and we are all unworthy. Christ alone is worthy. And then we're told that it was needful for me. This is the word that, that uh, Jude uses here. And literally, it was pressed upon his heart. You know, you may have had moments and situations where you've really felt the need to write to somebody or to speak to somebody or to say something. Just a real uh, compulsion and urge. Just, it's so important that I get this across to that person. Well, that's what Jude's saying. You know, it was so pressed upon his heart that he had to do it. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend. Now, uh, this Greek word, epegonizomai, uh, uh, is the word here. And it literally means to fight for war, to struggle as in a contest where there can only be one winner. Now, that's what Paul says, so Jude is saying we should do in regard to the faith that we have. We should fight for it. We should stand up for it as if it's either this is going to stand or our opponents are going to win the day. You know, we live in a world where that which we believe is constantly ridiculed and constantly challenged and people try to water it down. You know what? I'm not too worried about what the world says. The world is going to say whatever it wants. What concerns me is what those within the church say. You know, we need to earnestly contend, particularly within the church. And when we see people trying to water down the word of God or say that it doesn't really mean this or that's not true. Or like one prominent evangelical Christian, uh, so-called, said to me once uh, regarding Genesis that the chapters 1 to 11 were just Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. Uh, we had a conversation and I earnestly contended for the faith with that particular individual. Um, I had another prominent evangelical minister um, many years ago uh, who tried to, to argue with me and say that the uh, events, certainly Genesis, couldn't should be taken literally uh, and that the Ten Commandments and so on were, were kind of good things to follow. But, you know, they didn't really have any place or purpose today. Well, you know, the law is there to lead us to Christ. It has a, a very definite, defined purpose. And of course, the things that we read in Genesis are true. This individual came back to me and said, I suppose you believe that Jesus will be coming back on a white horse? To which I replied, yes. And at that point, I realized, really, we weren't getting anywhere. But it doesn't mean we don't contend. We must contend for the faith. And particularly for those who are younger than us and who are growing up, our children and those within the church that haven't had the opportunity um, yet to, to experience and learn the things from the word of God that we have. We need to declare the truth. And again, Jude is really clear about this. Fight as if there's only going to be one winner to this. Don't give up. Don't quit. Notice also what he says, honestly contend for the faith. There is only one faith. There's not many faiths. Our current monarch, the queen, uh, one of the titles she has, and it's on uh, our pound coins, Fidei Defensa, a defender of the faith. Prince Charles has already made the statement that uh, if, as and when he becomes monarch, is going to be changing that title to defender of the faiths. In other words, he's looking to try and support and, and work with all religions, all beliefs. But there is only one faith. Faith is based upon evidence. I mean, we read that in Hebrews 11. It's not a blind leap in the dark. And yet when you look at other cults and religions and isms and so on, they're not based upon evidence. They're not based upon historical events that actually took place that we can verify. No, no. Jude is clear that we can, should contend for the faith. Uh, no, there aren't many options. There's not many ways. In fact, in Ephesians chapter four, verse five, we're told that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The final part of this uh, verse is that this, what, this faith that we earnestly contend for was once delivered unto the saints. The Greek word there, hapax, means conclusively. I quite like that. It's simply saying that the faith that we have was conclusively, it was concluded. It was given to the saints. It will not be added to. It will not be altered. It doesn't need to be added to or altered. It was conclusive. It was complete. It was everything it needs to be. I love that statement. It was once delivered unto the saints. It's not going to change. Paul, in writing to the Galatians, challenges them. that They were turning away from the gospel. They were trying to bring in other things. You know, and even today, and many of you are, uh, are very familiar with the kind of Jesus and gospels that go around. That, you know, it's not just Jesus, but Jesus and if you do this or and if you do that. 
No, it's just Jesus. We don't need anything else. There's nothing else added to it. The gospel is very simple. Verse four. Now we get into the bit that Jude really wanted to write about. Well, the bit that he didn't want to write about, but he feels he has to write about is this. He says, for there are certain men crept in unawares. Notice the first thing he says is they, they snuck in. We didn't see them coming. They got inside the church. They, they're there now. And we weren't aware of them coming in. But he says, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men. I mean, saying that the Lord has already foretold that this was going to happen. And these individuals have taken on that responsibility of fulfilling prophecy themselves by becoming these people that the prophets of old have warned about. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. You know, this is the point. The grace of God, the salvation we have. And they're saying, well, now that I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. I'm free to, to, to lust. I'm free to indulge in whatever I want to because I'm saved. So it doesn't matter. And Judy's saying, no, 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 that is not the case. And, he says, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the extent that they deny God's sovereignty. They deny Jesus as being the son of God. Uh, John dealt with some of these issues. I just want to read to you from some other scriptures uh, that echo this theme. Back in First Timothy chapter 4, if you remember, we read there, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. I can't think of a stronger way that God could put that. The, sp- the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Uh, You know what it's like if you burn yourself and you get a scar there. That particular point becomes uh, desensitized. And he's saying these people have become just like that. They're no longer sensitive to sin. It doesn't hurt them. It doesn't cause them any concern any longer. And he's saying these people are going to come into the church and they are going to be deceiving others. Bringing in these doctrines of devils. Back in Acts chapter 20, Paul on the beach at Miletus, speaking to the Ephesian elders there, to the church at Ephesus, says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I mean, just making the point here that the church isn't just this casual kind of club that you get to join if you fancy. Jesus purchased the church with his blood. He says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. I mean, it doesn't just say that you're going to have some wolves that have come in and cause a few problems. He says, grievous wolves, and they're going to not spare the flock. Imagine a field of sheep, and then you get grievous wolves. And notice it's not just a singular here, there's plural. There's going to be a multitude of these that come in, and they don't care for the flock. They're not bothered about the congregation, about the church, about the people. They just want to devour. They want to get what they want. Paul goes on and says, Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. This again, we've seen it. This warning that Paul was given to these Christians, the elders of the church at Ephesus, he's saying that these people are going to come in, they're going to speak perverse things, and they're going to draw away people. They're going to seem very plausible, but they'll draw people after them. And that's really what they want. They want to be in these positions. We saw last time in uh, 3 John, uh, how John was tackling and dealing with uh, Diophrephes, this individual that was uh, doing just that, drawing away people after himself. And if people didn't agree with him, he'd cast them out of the church. Well, This is what we're being told. Verse 31, therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, Paul says, I earnestly contended for the faith. Effectively, he says, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. This is something Paul was very passionate about. He could see the dangers coming. Now, in light of all of this, we need to also go back to Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew 13, we read this, verse 24. Another parable put he, that's Jesus, forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then has it tares? 
And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Will thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. And then this really important verse, Matthew 13, verse 30, in the explanation that Jesus gives of this, speaking, of course, of the, the kingdom of the church, the fact that the enemy has sown these individuals in the church that will lead us astray is what we've been looking at. He says this, let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, which is already identified as the angels, gather you together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them and gather the wheat into my barn. It's a great picture of the rapture of the church. The church is going to be gathered into Christ's barn. And the those that are bringing false doctrine, those who are the, the tares, will be gathered together in bundles. Now, by the end of the first century, tares were already being sown in the church. And it led to compromise and false doctrine being introduced, exactly why Jude is writing these things. And throughout church history, of course, it's continued. But we're given this marker to note, and that is at the end of the age, the tares are going to be gathered together in bundles. So we shouldn't be surprised to see some of the things happening that we do see. It's exactly what Matthew recalls, what Jesus said, that these individuals will be gathered in groups together. And so we shouldn't be surprised at some of the things going on in the Christian church, broadly speaking. See, we're given clear instructions not to try and uproot the tares because they're growing in the same soil as the wheat and we don't want to damage the wheat. So it's not our job to uproot them. It's the job of the wheat to keep growing in readiness for the harvest. That's what we're to focus on. And at the same time, be aware that the tares are around and make sure our brothers and sisters don't get tripped up or caught up or entangled with those things. Okay, so back into Jude. Jude is now going to give us three object lessons, and we're not going to get to go through all of these this morning, but we're going to touch on the first one of these from the Old Testament. He's going to warn us of the danger of being led astray or deceived by these apostates. Yes, we can be deceived, so we need to be so careful. But even more concerning than that is that Jude is going to say, you know, there's a real danger of you actually becoming apostate. You end up following after these individuals or you get to that place of complacency and you become like them. So Jude is going to give us some warnings to say, don't let this happen to you. Turning away from the grace of God. Is that such a thing? Is that possible? Can we turn away from the grace of God? Well, that is what Jude is going to be warning us about. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now you can go and you can look at that Greek word castaway and you can try and understand what it means, but you won't come to any other conclusion than Paul was saying, I'm aware that if I don't pay heed and take care of my own walk with the Lord, I'm concerned that I could be a castaway. Now, this is a real challenge to some of the things that we typically think and teach and believe. But let's build on this. Look, let's look at what Jude says. He says this in verse five. I will therefore put you in remembrance. In other words, okay, think about this. Though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. This is a, a really quite concerning statement. Jude says, think about the children of Israel in Egypt. Think of the fact that they were delivered. They were set free from the bondage, the slavery of the Egyptians. They went through the waters of the Red Sea, analogous to baptism, of course. They were brought to the base of Mount Sinai. And yet, because of their unbelief, God destroyed them. David Guzik, in his commentary, says this. Uh, the warning through Jude is clear. The people of Israel started out from Egypt well enough. They had many blessings from God along the way, but they did not endure to the end because they did not believe God's promise of power and protection. Notice the things we've already looked at, that God has promised that the work of sanctification is his work. Jesus is constantly watching over us. We have been called, but what are we doing with it? Chuck Misler used to ask the question very often when he was teaching. He used to start by saying, um, you know, how many of you are born again? And of course, the majority of people would put up their hands. And he said, great, what have you done with it? Well, that's the question in a sense that we're being asked here. Now, you may remember back in the book of Hebrews, we looked that there's a structure through the book of Hebrews where five warnings are given to 
Christians, to the Hebrew Christians particularly, but to all of us. The first one is a warning about drifting. It's very, very clear. The second warning is a warning about disobedience and the results and the effects of. The third warning is a warning of failing to mature as a believer. The fourth warning is a warning about willful sin. And then the last one is the worst of all. It's a warning about indifference. Let me just say this. The great loss awaits those who fail to persevere in their walk with the Lord. It's loss of reward and honor in Christ's coming millennial kingdom. See, all five warnings themselves are actually a unit in Hebrews and they go together to complement each other and each one builds upon the other as it goes through and they intensify until you get to that kind of fifth capstone. Uh, all those studies are online if you want to go and review them. But uh, in fact, it was the very first session, I think, in Hebrews that we went through looking at that, the whole of these five warnings before we went into the study proper. Um, but the writer relies heavily on Israel's exodus, just as Jude is doing here, as an example or a type of individual Christians. See, the Exodus generation, they were a redeemed people. They failed to heed God's instructions. And notice that they were saved from Egypt, but they were judged or disinherited for, because of their disobedience. They didn't get to enter the promised land. Their inheritance, that which God had said would be theirs. They didn't take advantage of the fact that they had been, if you may, if I may use this expression, they had been called. They had been saved. But they didn't live lives of faith and trust in God. And so they lost their inheritance. I want to go through some examples of those who have fallen from grace. And let this be a warning to us. Of course, Lucifer, arguably the greatest of all examples in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, we're told there that he was the anointed cherub. He was in this credibly exalted position. Of course, God's grace is what had allowed that. And yet he rebels and loses everything that he had. With him, there's a third of all angels that also rebel against God. They also lose their position. Adam and Eve lost their position. They fell from God's perfect creation. It was back in Genesis 3. In fact, because of that, all mankind are said to have sinned and fallen short. We have lost that original position that we had. And of course, through scripture, there are many Israelites uh, that are alluded to, but particularly in regard to the Exodus generation, they were redeemed, as we've said already. They were sanctified. They were set apart for God, very clearly. They were converted. In his grace, they were. They had their names in the book, and yet... There was the reality that their names could be blotted out of the book of life. Read Exodus 32, verse 32 and verse 33. Moses pleads with God on their behalf in regard to that very issue. When they sinned, they were cut off from God and they were lost. First Corinthians 10, 1 to 10, tell us of that. Now, also, Nadab and Abihu, they're Aaron's sons. They were priests, they were killed. Now, actually, as I was going through my Bible in the year this morning, I actually read this. Um, of the account of Nadab and Abihu, not of the, the Leviticus 10 bit, but in Exodus, when Nadab and Abihu actually get to go up Mount Sinai with Moses, with the 70 elders, and they get to see God's glory. Now, these two individuals, you can't talk of people that have been closer to God than they were, and yet God kills them because they profane an offering, they take strange fire, they try to worship God in the way they want to rather than going in the way that God has said they had to. So these individuals fallen from grace. Korah, of course, and now actually we're going to find that Jude will refer to Korah. Dathan, Abiram, also these three together, they challenge Moses' authority and they're killed. They were in a very privileged position. They were Levites, and yet they lose what they had. Saul, of course, another one that lost his position. He received the Holy Spirit. He was the one that God had chosen to be king, but he lost it all as a result of disobedience. There are, of course, many disciples of Jesus that for a while believed, we're told, in Luke 8, 13. And then they followed him no more. They drew back to perdition, effectively. They received grace, but then they turned from it. John 1, uh, sorry, uh, John uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we're told, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, but of the will, uh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice that they were given, those who believed him, they were given the power. But did they avail themselves of that? I just pose that as a question. Of course, we're told, John 6, verse, John chapter 6, verse 66, and they followed him no more. Many of those that had followed Jesus, seen the miracles, received grace in a sense, but they followed him no more. Of course, there's the example of Judas and betray Jesus. In fact, Jesus says of Judas, um, you know, that of all you've given me, I've not lost any except the son of perdition, except Judas. So Jesus is saying he lost Judas. And then there's, of course, Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They were certainly saved. No question about that. They were part of the early church, but they lied to the Holy Spirit and God kills them. There's the Judaizers that Paul writes to in Galatians or writes regarding in Galatians 5. They'd return to the law. And that's where we get that expression. Those who want to themselves be under the law have fallen from grace. These are kind of concerning things because it goes against everything that we teach, everything that we say. Demas, another one in the New Testament, went back into sin. Hymenius and Alexander, they made shipwreck the faith of others and they themselves were also castaways in that sense. Philetus, another one, along with Hymenius, who erred from the faith. This is troubling stuff because this is what Jude is bringing to our attention. He's saying, don't get complacent. Look at these. Think about these examples. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Notice that we are told we need to take heed. If you think you stand, great, but be careful lest you fall. And then, of course, Luke 11.35, Jesus said, take, take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. A worrying statement in itself. And then, of course, in Romans, that will say then the branches, this is speaking of Israel and the fact that Israel were broken off because of their unbelief, because they didn't recognize the Messiah coming. And the Gentiles, we've been grafted in. But Paul says, the statement, that will say then the branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also not spare thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God, on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. These are all scriptures from the word of God. And this is, again, uh, uh, just something that we really need to be very aware of. You know, every time we meet apostasy in the Bible, it's always met with God's judgment. Enos led to the judgment of the flood, the things that took place in Enos's day. The situation with Cush and Nimrod, again, the God brought judgment at the Tower of Babel. The molten calf back in Exodus 32. Of course, 3,000 died as a result of that. That apostasy led to judgment. Balaam, we'll find that Jude mentions him. He led, to, his deception led to 24,000 of the children of Israel dying. Led to judgment. That apostasy led to judgment. Korah, again, also mentioned by Jude. That situation, 250 died. God brought judgment. Israel, 13 times in the book of Judges, forsook for the Lord. They went after their own uh, lusts and their own gods and whatever. Um, and God threw them, gave them over to their neighbors. Uh, spent 111 years in total in servitude. So we see this. And of course, Israel and Judah uh, were eventually captured by the Syrian, the Babylonian armies uh, taken away. So apostasy always leads to judgment. Don't think that as a believer, you are exempt from these things. And this is the point that Jews making. This is the Christian conundrum. OK, we're going to come on as close with this, but I just want you to, to think this through. So we are to be in perfect peace. OK, that, that's what Jude starts off with the letters talking about. We should have that peace. He, he wishes that he prays for it for us. We're to be in perfect peace. And yet at the same time, we're to fear God. How do we reconcile those two? Well, let me ask the question then. Can we lose our salvation? If we've been called, can we throw it away? Well, my answer to that question is no. It's a free gift. You did not earn it. You did nothing to earn your salvation. You simply receive it by faith. But let me ask you another question. Can you lose your inheritance? Yes, because it's based upon obedience. Well, then let me ask you the question then. Can you fall from grace? Well, it depends very much on what we mean by grace. It's a very broad subject. But yes, in the sense 
that you can move yourself outside God's will and protection through disobedience. And these are the points that I think Jude is really trying to get across to us. But there are some really serious warnings here. Now, this morning, again, just reading my quiet time with the Lord, I was just reading through uh, in Exodus, I'm up to chapter 23, and I read this this morning. Um, and this just struck me because it says there, behold, this is God speaking. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. What a great comfort to Israel. God is saying, I'm going to send my angel. He's going to keep thee, just as Jude says, that Jesus is watching over us. He's to keep thee in the way and to bring thee. That's that sanctification, setting us apart, leading us, bring thee into the place which I have prepared because we have been called. This applies equally to us. What a great encouragement. But then look at the next verse. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So we have these two ends of the spectrum. We have the absolute joy and the privilege and the, the comfort and the peace that come with knowing that we are saved. And yet at the same time, we have a warning that God is not mocked. We're told very clearly that if we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. But if we sow to the spirit, we'll reap everlasting life. Lots to get our heads around in these things this morning. And I'm not going to draw many conclusions from this because we want to build on it and we'll see where we go next week. But these are the concerns that Jude is writing to the believers about. And in a nutshell, what he's saying is, Know how safe and secure you are in God, and yet at the same time, don't blow it. I leave you to ponder these things. We'll build on it. We'll talk more in our subsequent studies. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this morning. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, of your great love for us. The love that was so great that Jesus went to the cross, that his blood was shed to purchase us. Oh, but Lord, help us also to work, walk worthy of the calling wherein we are called. Lord, help us to recognize that we are not free to just live however we want, regardless of the consequences. But you've called us to live righteous and godly lives. Oh, Father, help us to understand and unravel these things in our hearts and our minds, that we will be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Father, especially in these days as we are counting down to the rapture, when we get to see you face to face, Lord, may we not stumble. May we not fall. May we not count the blood of our Savior as a cheap thing. But Lord, value that salvation with everything we have. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.